Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I am here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host who may never come back to the United States, Mr. Tim O'Toole. Tim, how are you? What's going on, Brian? Hello from Canada. Yes, for, any, finally. for anybody watching on YouTube, you can probably gather that Tim is in Canada by his attire. Uh, but uh, for for any of y'all listening on uh, on the the traditional podcast, uh, means uh, Tim is decked out in his full Canadians gear uh, and is uh, celebrating the fact that he's finally been able to cross the border and, and get up to uh, get up to Montreal or to the Montreal area. Rather. Where does it? Uh, a balmy 58 degrees. Love. I wish it was 58 degrees in DC. That would be amazing. <laughs> um, well, thank you to everybody for joining us. Welcome to Embargo. Welcome back to Embargo. We have largely taken the month of August off, uh, a much needed rest, both for Tim and I. Uh, not entirely idle, unfortunately, but uh, away from podcasting, at least for the better part of the month. Um, but we are back and we're recording this on August 31st. This will go up uh, the first couple of days of September. And uh, we're very happy to be back. Thank you for everybody uh, for you know that we've heard from in the in the intervening few weeks when we've been off the air. Uh, but um, we have a very uh, we have a special episode coming back to uh, take us out of our summer break. Uh, which, and we have a guest which we, who we will introduce in just a moment. Uh, and we're really only doing uh, the roadmap for today is, is pretty simple. We're going to have our guest on to discuss uh, some topics that I will get to in a moment relating to enforcement, both on the OFAC side and the BIS side. And then t- after uh, we say goodbye to our guest, Tim and I are going to spend the last remaining portion of the show talking about what is probably the unquestioned number one international story at the moment, uh, certainly as relates to the U.S., which is Afghanistan. And we're going to talk about um, what's happened in the past few weeks uh, and where things stand now and what we expect, especially on the sanctions front, which I think is a big, huge question mark that everybody's asking at the moment. So um, so before we jump in, just our normal reminders, we're not giving legal advice. We're not sharing any confidential information. Everything you hear uh, is the opinion of me or Tim or our guest, Michael. Uh, so if you don't like them, blame us. Don't blame anybody else. Um, and if you enjoy the pod, please subscribe. You can find us anywhere you get your pod content. Uh, please leave us a review, hopefully a five-star review, and spread the word. Uh, we will be back to our pretty much our normal schedule every two weeks going forward. Um, and this is going to take us out of the summer and into the fall before we before we get started, Tim, any any thoughts as you are uh, in a much uh, nicer venue today podcasting than either Michael or I are? Uh, any thoughts that you'd like to share, perspective, reflections? Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of getting out of the thick of things. Um, I still am struck by how much how much sanctions activity and export controls activity is going on in, in August. Um, you know, not just for you and me in terms of active matters, but also just what's going on with with OFAC it does seem like they're um they've got their hands full in a number of different areas we'll talk about one of them after we talk to Michael yeah um it's it's way more active than than I remember yeah August some August seeing. some Augusts are pretty quiet some Augusts end up being kind of a, a dumping ground or parking lot where a lot of things just kind of get you know released because people have time to finally um you know focus on those things or get them wrapped up I, I think there is a lot we are not covering today 
uh, and that's intentional. We're going to come back to a lot of these things um, the next time around. There have been a, there have been new executive orders, new sanctions actions, new enforcement actions, uh, many things that have happened in the last several weeks that we are purposefully skipping for the moment. We are just going to talk to our guest and talk Afghanistan, and then we're next time around we're going to catch up on some of those things. Well, this was, you know, Michael's articles were timely and, and important and, and are really, I think, you know, a good topic to, to spend, you know, half hour talking about because this is, this is, this is what it's, this is the, the big enforcement actions in the area in the last five or 10 Indeed. years. So that's great. Indeed. So with that, I think that's a good segue to introduce our guests. So we are happy to have with us today, Michael Griffiths from Global Investigations Review, GIR. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hi, Brian and Tim. Thanks for having me We're on. We're very pleased to have Michael on with us today, and he's somebody we've known for a while. We talk to uh, occasionally, including for these articles. Um, but the reason what prompted us to ask Michael to join us is, uh, and for anybody out there who, who listens to this podcast who does not um, subscribe to the GIR Just Sanctions publication, shame on you. You should uh, remedy that immediately. <laughs> and you should, exactly. sign, you right should now. sign up immediately. Um, and so in August, for those who didn't see this, um, Michael published two pieces, which were um, surveys of practitioners um, in the sanctions and export controls area. And basically the question that he posed to everyone was, um, can you share with me what you think the most important or essential or consequential, uh, meaningful enforcement actions have been that have shaped OFAC compliance, sanctions compliance, and export controls compliance um, over the past few years? And so a really um, interesting premise, an interesting question. And so let's, and for those who haven't seen those articles, fully encourage you to go uh, check them out, but we're obviously going to talk a bit more about that. So, so let's just start with Michael. You know, in terms of, um, you know, what kind of drove you to to look into this and to kind of, you know, take a take a survey of of folks who think about these things all the time, like Tim and I do. You know, kind of what prompted you to do that, and then, you know, maybe as a first question, you know, just initial reaction, kind of what were your sort of most interesting takeaways from what you learned by going through this exercise? Yeah, so so the genesis of it was that uh, every so often, as, as I've done to, to you both, as you, you alluded to earlier, I uh, have a chat to lawyers about the thing, you know, around the sanctions field. Um, sometimes as a journalist, you want to find out what people know uh, a lot of the time. Other times you want to find out what they would like to know. Um, so I was having a casual conversation with uh, a some uh, prominent uh, lawyer in the, the DC area, Kerry Contini at uh, Baker McKenzie. And she said that what she would really like to know is what other, when, what were the sort of enforcement actions that cl that lawyers' clients sort of pick up, picked up the phone and said, oh, you know, we didn't know this was the case. And then we had to institute a whole range of measures to sort of address that. Um, so from that germ of the idea, we're really looking for both with OFAC enforcement actions and with BIS enforcement actions, really trying to get an idea of, of, of when which enforcement actions really had the greatest influence on, on corporate compliance. Um, for me, as you, as you both know, I started covering this field in about February 2019 uh, full-time. We had sort of done sanctions, sanctions things before at GIR, but really our focus started ramping up in about 2019. Um, and so while you're trying to learn the beat a bit, uh, there is a sort of 
institutional knowledge that begins when you start doing it full time. And so my world is sort of oriented by the ELF cosmetics uh, enforcement actions, which I feel is when I when my 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 knowledge begins. Um, but anyway, so. We, it was a very simple thing. So I think uh, I contacted uh, contacted a fair few firms and, and I got 12 uh, responded. And it was pretty much, it was pretty free, uh, pretty free and easy that anyone who wanted to contribute could contribute. And that's fine. Um, so we got, for the OFAC uh, survey, we got about 30 lawyers responding. And for the BIS survey, we, we got uh, a bit fewer than that, um, which we can get into why uh, later on. But I suppose the main takeaways for the OFAC one that the, by far and away the most voted for enforcement action was the CSE Transtel uh, case from 2017, um, which, um, I, I mean, I don't know if you want to disclose, but voted for um, as well by you two. So, uh, uh, and, then, and then we had the, X, the ExxonMobil case and then we had the ELF Cosmetics case. But I suppose one of the, the, they were the top three and the sort of clear top three. But I think what I found particularly interesting was that in the OFAC in the OFAC survey we had 18 different enforcement actions referenced, which I really wasn't expecting. I was genuinely expecting to get the ELF cosmetics case, and that was it, um, and then some other ones. Um, but yeah, so it was really interesting. There was a really even spread. Um, I think. I think um, I'm not sure if you want if you want to sort of get into more detail about that. Yeah, now. I was going to say one. You know, one of the things that occurs, I think, as you alluded to, I think we, I think those were our th top three as well, and maybe the order was slightly different, but I think it was those were sort of our top yeah. three as well. One of the things that I think is striking to to me, and that Tim and I talk about all the time, is, um, you know, as you said, there was a wide range of cases and enforcement actions that kind of made the list. And I think they're, you know, for obviously for different reasons, some might be because people see an industry focus. Um, some might see just a, you know, a big dollar amount in terms of the fine and, and especially a couple of the big financial um, enforce, you know, financial institution enforcement actions. But I think what sets apart maybe the top three and that I, I think resonates with us is, you know, there's almost a like a tagline or a simple takeaway that you can, or a lesson that you can, you know, tie to each of these top three, right? With, you know, number one, CSE being about, you know, US dollar transactions, even for non-US entities. Um, number two, ExxonMobil being any kind of dealings with SDNs, even if you're not sort of directly, uh, you know, with Igor Sechin and the, and the whole uh, issue there in terms of receipt of services and the dispute there and the lawsuit, um, you know, and and, uh, and we can attest to the fact that those two things have very fundamentally changed the way that people think through and, and sort of process compliance risk when it comes to those types of things. And then the third with, with ELF being supply chain risk and, and having to understand more than just what's going on with the direct your direct supplier, perhaps it's sort of layers beyond that. And, and I think that is now absolutely blown up when you look at everything that's going on with Xinjiang and sort of the sourcing issues and the sanctions issues that come out of supplying um, out of that region. And it's the same concept that ELF is talking about. And it's it's really just exploded. So I think those three things and the big sort of takeaways there, that those really resonated and continue to resonate, which I think is why you saw them just, you know, kind of come up time and again across the board. Yeah, I mean, I, the one, the, the couple things I'd add on those are, are one, with respect to ELF in particular, I mean, I thought that the impact of that 
I could see that it was huge just from my own practice and, and from our you know firm's practice because we just started getting a lot of questions about how to incorporate um, potential sanctions issues into supply chain audits because I think those audits are re- relatively frequent but they didn't really incorporate a sanctions component into it until ELF and and I think it's fairly standard practice now only two years later and so you know that was that was a case that I, I I felt like I knew it had had an effect. I'd be curious with respect to, to CSE um, to see whether or not companies changed their behavior with respect to use of dollars after that came out. Because I think you know if you went to OFAC conferences before CSE and even after CSE, you hear them say the mere fact that there's a use of dollars does not create a U.S. nexus. But really, after CSE, that strikes me as almost false, because they went so far in that enforcement action to come up with a U.S. nexus because of the use of dollars that it's really hard to think of an... Inf- it, it would be hard from a lawyer's perspective to tell a client, yes, you're using dollars, but because the bank that you're dealing with is outside the U.S. and has its own dollar reserves, that that is not a U.S. nexus for sanctions purposes. After CSE, I don't think you could be very comfortable giving that advice, even though you can go to an OFAC conference and hear people from OFAC tell you that. It just doesn't it's, – it's more complicated and in a bad way, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I think the other thing, I don't sorry. know, Michael, if this struck you, but, um, you know, one thing, too, with the three that we're talking about, the three, the top three, these are not big monetary penalties, right? These are, they're relatively modest in the grand scheme of things. You know, obviously, we see some, there are some on the list that are, you know, nine figures, and these are certainly not. ELF is less than a million dollars US, and and still, you know, it's sort of the, the lessons learned it are very impactful. And I, and I think I, I wonder if you, if that was kind of echoed in what you heard from folks just about, um, you know, it's not necessarily about the bottom line. It's about sort of that, um, you know, what the secondary and tertiary consequences of these takeaways are. Yeah, definitely. And, and as you say, you can say that in the enforcement actions, but you can also see it in the fact that the ExxonMobil fine was overturned, right. so it's um, which is which is a fascinating insight as well. Is that perhaps in the OFAC world, um, which might seem weird to other legal spheres, is that even though a fine that is no longer active or has been removed, the compliance lessons endure, um, which is kind of interesting. But but definitely, I mean, we some of these cases are are really quite small. I mean, I think the BitGo and BitPay ones, the cryptocurrency uh, ones, which are which are sort of significant for obvious reasons, are incredibly small dollar amounts. What I on the sort of flip side of that argument, I found it quite interesting. The big bank cases are very well established, and we've had, you know, what it, BNP Paribas was what twenty fourteen. So that, you know, they're quite. OFAC has done them a lot, and I was quite surprised to see that Standard Chartered and UniCredit got a few votes as well. It seems as though the the particularly the points around I, uh, searching for SDNs by or searching for sanctioned parties by IP addresses and IP address screenings uh, was something that came up in those settlements. That even people that do the big bank that represent banks and should be well versed in what these cases look like still found those settlements quite interesting which i thought was which i thought was sort of noteworthy as well yeah i think hitting on that hitting on the the point you just made which is the ip addresses and um i you know sort of location information that might be within the base of knowledge of the you know screening party whether it's a bank or anybody else i think that is a little bit of an evolution in terms of the sort of lessons learned that are coming across right because the older bank cases the i think the 
the party's location and some of the information that was, um, you know, known to the banks was through more traditional means, perhaps. And I think the, the idea that parties are now going to be held to account if they are, if within their base of knowledge, if within their, you know, documentation, their files, their records are these types of bits of information is significant. And I think that is sort of a, you know, a slight expansion. I think you're right, though, that as a general matter, those cases are you know, they're not all that dissimilar to the things that we've seen over the course of the past decade and sort of the big, you know, large transaction volume mm. bank cases. Yeah, I mean, that. so so I think it's both surprising that there were no banks in the top three, given, mm. you know, the fact that OFAC's main focus is on, you know, the financial, financial restrictions and financial the financial, sex, financial sector. But I think it's also surprising, as you point out, Michael, that that there were some bank cases that were close to the top three because the bank cases have been going on for so long and and they seem like almost a product from a different era in the sense that you know the lessons learned from most of the bank cases is if you're you know your management committee and your your chief executives decide that they'd rather try and make money and evade sanctions by changing financial documents in order to remove the mention of sanctions that that can get you in a lot of trouble like that's that that pretty well is pretty time, well established now yeah. it's pretty well established now and i think you know it, it, at the time it was just a question of nobody really believed that ofac um, was going to reach out in the ways that it ultimately did with respect to the banks. But now I think everybody knows that that could happen. And certainly in the banks, that it's a different era. But I, I agree with you that there's some interesting points from some of the new cases with respect to IP addresses, which is not just a bank issue. It's it's coming up in like the SAP enforcement action from you know last year, which was a multi-agency enforcement action. And I think it's in your BIS survey also had some of that going yeah i think sap i think sap is actually that's a good segue i think sap is actually the only one that's on both lists um and it's on the ofac and the bis list and of course it's also a doj matter at the end of the day uh and there was a doj resolution as part of that as well so maybe let's pivot to the bis list anything and i know you said at the outset michael that there was um a slightly lower response rate on the bis front which is not terribly surprising um because I think the, you know, on the OFAC side, there's just more, um, certainly in DC, I think we can test this, there's sort of more um, attention paid on kind of a broad basis and probably just more folks that are um, kind of paying attention to that on a, on a daily basis. But on the BIS side, anything particularly surprising there? I mean, ZTE, I think was the obvious number one, not surprising that that's what um, kind of, came out on top of the survey, but anything else sort of surprising, even on, in the comments you got or anything else on the BIS side? Yeah, I mean, the the ZTE matter, the, the scope of the sort of significance of the ZTE matter is what we've proved with the BIS survey. I mean, it was the runaway winner by a long way. Um, the SAP settlement also did poll quite well in the BIS section, but uh, as you've referred to, the the sort of DOJ angle of that and the first under the revamped voluntary disclosure program was probably why it was significant, less so on the BIS side, I suspect. Um, apart from that, really, um, it was it was sort of ZTE and then Daylight was the was the result was the was the sort of takeaway from it. Um, 
What I, I thought was interesting is I, I thought the Nordic Maritime case, which was reviewed uh, by the Undersecretary uh, and then upheld, was going to poll better than it did, but um, apparently not. That, that only registered two votes as opposed to ZTE's 19. Um, in, terms of, in terms of takeaways, um, I suppose the most interesting thing was the sort of the general... There was sort of less, there's less meat on the bone with BIS cases, it seems. And that's what was reflected in the results, where there was a lot you could read into both the ZTE and SAP cases. And while I haven't actually checked this, but in terms of what cases BIS has put out press releases about, I could say in the last five years that this, these two would be two of the very few uh, cases that they've done that for. So I suppose what this really speaks to is that OFAC's enforcement stance seems to be look, here's a, here's a lesson we could teach you while penalising this country, company, whereas BIS is sort of, here's a violation, let's penalise a violation and we'll upload the, uh, we'll upload the penalty order to um, a dusty back corner of our website. Um, and if anyone wants to find it, um, they can. Yeah, so, yes. a very good point. Very good point. Sorry, go ahead, Tim. Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I, I do think that it's, at least looking from the outside, it seems to be the 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 likely result of a of a difference in policy between BIS and and OFAC at least from my from from the outside looking in it looks to me like OFAC as you said Michael is really trying to teach use its enforcement actions to teach broader lessons and as a result people are paying a lot of attention to them because it you know the fact that CSE got penalized 11 million dollars I mean I don't think that really unless CSE is your client I don't think you really care but but the fact that OFAC is now you know looking at dollar transactions even though they didn't directly clear in, in New York and treating that as a U.S. nexus that gives them the jurisdiction to penalize is something that we all need to to tell our clients. And when OFAC you know wraps it up into a little package and tells you what the lesson is, you you got to start paying attention so you can advise your clients properly. BIS you know for whatever reason has not really decided to do that with its enforcement actions. It's they're harder to find um, just from a you know, website perspective, and they don't necessarily put out a press release, and they certainly don't send an immediate email um, a lot of the time when they do one, and they don't package it up in a little, you know, message. And so uh, it's not totally surprising to me that people are paying less attention to BIS enforcement actions, because they, they don't seem to be going out of their way to try and, you know, teach lessons beyond, like, this party got hit with a, an $11 million fine or whatever. Yeah, I think I, two, a couple other comments to that um, to that uh, point, and, and I agree completely with Michael's insight that, the you know, in the dusty little corner of the website comment, not to disparage our friends at BIS, who we know are doing um, great work, <laughs> but... Um, I, I think there is, I think there is a, there's a couple things going on here in my view. So it is kind of a marketing and publicity issue to some degree. I think OFAC kind of has this down to a science now to some degree and, and has a very clean, easy to navigate website. They have their sort of the push notifications that, and emails that go out whenever, uh, you know, any enforcement actions come out, anybody gets out of the SDN list, et cetera. Um, and it's very easy to kind of stay on top of all that, um, I think on the BIS side as well, and this is borne out in part by, I think, the you know, if we look at ZTE and SAP, those are multi-agency actions both. And in both cases, were really led in the first instance by DOJ. In, Z, in ZTE, of course, there was the resolution with DOJ that came a year before the denial order and then the second fine and the second monitor and everything else with ZTE. So not, not and I, and I, 
was still at DOJ when this was going on, so I was living through this. But this is, um, you know, not to be forgotten there. And then the in SAP the same with the three agencies, but with DOJ kind of, I would say probably having the lead on that in, in many in many respects. And so um, there is a lot of I think a lot of instances on the traditional export control side, violations of the AR side where it does probably verge into or overlap a little bit more with the criminal jurisdiction of DOJ. And so you might see, you're going to see probably more um, kind of DOJ-led efforts there and BIS kind of working in tandem or even coming as a more secondary role uh, on some of those. And so DOJ has no problem kind of, you know, promoting and touting what it's doing when it, when it goes that route. But if it does shift into a pure administrative enforcement action on its own, yeah, there is there is that seems to be a little bit of a, a gap. It just seems to be an area that BIS does not um, sort of, you know, run screaming from the rooftops about when they are putting something out to try to teach a lesson, to try to engender certain compliance um, takeaways the way that OFAC does. So I, I agree completely. And that I think is a little bit of a quirk of kind of where they sit and how they team up with other agencies. And, and the fact that we just see OFAC acting independently more often, I think, than BIS, but um, but that's I, I totally agree on that. Yeah, I mean the one the one thing that I would you know add from that is that that because of the differences in the, the way the agencies proceed, I mean you have to kind of try and figure out from the BIS matters. Well, what is the lesson learned? And 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 I mean sometimes that's hard and sometimes that's not. I mean, but you know take ZTE. I mean to me ZTE is a BIS case in this respect. I mean, it really was a DOJ enforcement action. I mean, BIS had jurisdiction because there were some U.S. goods that were being transshipped to Iran as part of the as part of the, the, the predicate. But to me, the, the lesson learned from ZTE is that um, in a multi-jurisdiction or multi-agency enforcement action, uh, the, the BIS entity list can be used as a tool to um, get parties to the table and change their behavior and it's a, a, a more subtle tool than the SDN list. So ZTE was essentially part of that enforcement action and I think you know from the outside it looked like they were having a tough time getting ZTE to take it seriously and ultimately the entity list was used as a way to kind of get ZTE to the table and, and accede to US jurisdiction um, and, and that you know, was later used with with Huawei as well, um, although it hasn't worked in the same way that it was with Huawei. But but so that that's you know, to me that's part of the 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 trick with BIS is you've got to figure out for yourself what the lesson is as opposed to it being spooked. Yeah, one one other comment on that, and then I'll throw it back to Michael. Is you know, to Tim's point, I I agree with that, and I can attest to the fact that that was in fact what was going on kind of behind the scenes in terms of the entity listing to kind of bring ZTE to the table. Um, that also represents in some ways now that that all the doj resolution and the initial resolution with with zt was early 2017 so it was sort of that was largely underway in the tail end of the obama administration then kind of the trump administration took it over that that's to me sort of represents a bit of the old approach to how to use the entity list which is to chase behavior as opposed to the Trump administration approach, which was purely punitive in many in many respects, and was not really meant to change behavior, it was meant to isolate companies, especially Chinese companies, and just try to you know uh, punish them essentially. And 
I think it remains to be seen what the Biden administration is going to do there, if it's going to pivot back a little bit to the old approach or if it's going to use a bit of a hybrid. I think some of the some of what we're seeing so far suggests that they're going to use a bit of a, a hybrid approach there. But I think that is also part of why ZTE is so fascinating. It's kind of that bridge in the timing because it was all, you know, unraveling in 2017 and 18. And, and that was a you know, very important transition period, obviously. So, Michael. Which which actions would you have picked from OFACT and BIS? Uh, um, assuming you didn't already give yeah, yourself you vote? a vote, yeah, I'm curious yeah. as to the integrity of, is the integrity <laughs> of the vote. vote in question here? Do we need to, do we need to check? I, I believe I referenced in the article sanctions experts, and I would I would not I would not dare call myself that. Um, uh, so uh, so no, I I, am not, I I was not counted in it. Um, well, from from the OFACT side, as I said, uh, ELF Cosmetics. I thought would do quite well. I thought the CETA case from 2020 would, would do okay, only because the US jurisdiction in that case was sort of odd in that it was email sent through email or messages sent through servers in Texas or somewhere like that, in Atlanta, I think it might have been. Um, so I thought that would do quite well. Um, and then I thought the Haverly Systems case might do quite well because of the credit extension issue. But perhaps it wasn't because of the Russian sectoral sanctions issue that they felt, it was because they had the misstatements they had made or the sort of how they dealt with trying to get around that there was the problem rather than it being a sort of uh, a hard enforcement of that uh, of that regulation. So um, those were my those were my picks that all proved to be um, incorrect apart from one. So so there you go. Long way those, off. Those are those are, <laughs> but those are three good picks. I mean, I I, I do think that the CETA enforcement action is 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 overlooked in some sense because um it the discussion there was so technical but mm. the you know any enforcement action that really extends the OFAC's jurisdiction is important because you know as we see from the outside and with clients that's usually question number one is, you know, is there a U.S. nexus? Because if there is, the rules are so different than if there is no U.S. nexus and the enforcement risk is so different. And so any enforcement action that changes, you know, the that moves the ball or changes the changes the bar that that for a U.S. nexus and especially one that makes it lower. And, and in CETA, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it was kind of a random connection to the U.S. that got CETA into a lot of trouble. Um, yeah. And I think on that, so, on that point as well, you know, obviously with OFAC, everybody's, everybody's following the money always, right? You're always worried about where the, where the dollar flows are, where, where's the money, where's the correspondent accounts? Are we touching the U.S. that way? I think that highlights to Tim's point, when there are sort of the harder to pin down intangible connections because there are servers in the U.S. or there are services being rendered from the U.S., you know, SAP had a, the SAP action has a little bit of this to it as well as as part of I think why it resonated with people. Um, you know, when you're talking about software and services, cloud-based services, those are those are things that are not necessarily top of mind when you're thinking through kind of OFAC compliance issues. And so, you know, those are those are I think valuable. Um, you know, takeaways and, and sort of talking points to, to keep in mind when you when you think about those those items as well. I might do the uh, the, the most overlooked case on the uh, on the same, on the list and write write an op-ed about the seizure <laughs> enforcement. Oh, that'd be, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or like, 
Or, or the follow-up could be the, the, the correct answer <laughs> to my question was these three yeah, cases. Exactly. Here Sorry, everybody else got it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, exactly. yeah, I was thinking the next one might be the DDT, DDTC survey, but I think we're a fair way off. Um, we need a few more cases, I think, from them. I was going to say, you on. know, you, you'd have to do a 10-year period. Basically. Yeah, there, yes. there was, Basis there were just, pool. yeah, there, I think in the last decade, there have only, we were barely at 20 consent agreements. So yeah, you don't have a ton of data points to look at on DTC side, but. Um, I think from a journalism perspective, unless DDTC gets the treatment that other agencies get, which is, um, it's the small, you know, the, the smallest office in the U.S. government, the small but powerful office in the U.S. government that no one's ever heard about, which. I think OFAC got a few years ago, then BIS during the Trump administration and the FARA unit. Yes, Cepheus has got Cepheus has got that as well. But yeah, yeah, I don't know if anybody wrote that article about DDTC. I'm not. I have. I don't think I've seen it. But not to overlook our friends at DDTC, <laughs> DDTC of course. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah, well, Michael, we really appreciate you joining us. Um, we, again, to everybody out there, recommend that you, uh, if you're not already getting just sanctions, you need to get just sanctions and certainly look for Michael's pieces that ran in August uh, in GRR, just sanctions. And um, thank you, Michael, for joining us. And uh, we will we'll see you next time around. Thanks. Yeah, great Thanks stuff, Michael. Me. Thanks for the article. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you to Michael Griffiths from GIR for joining us. That was a lot of fun uh, and a nice, uh, again, sort of a nice end of summer palate cleanser to talk about one of our favorite topics enforcement actions and um exactly yeah. i mean it, it, i'm looking forward to, to what comes out next on this i mean i think we've we've given him some ideas for some follow-ups and, and also so. honestly probably a um you know a, a good uh and useful exercise to to do every you know couple years you know um agree to, to look back and let everybody reflect on what is it that i spent all my time talking about and thinking about it's these it's these few matters so yeah that was that was good um okay so with that as i said at the outset we only have two topics we might actually get in under an hour today unless tim and i really go off uh overboard here but um the only the only other topic we really wanted to cover today is is uh, you know in some ways is is uh i think the number one topic um, at least in the U.S. right now, internationally, if not globally, and that's the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, and so uh, obviously we're uh, assuming all of you out there are following what's happened with the U.S. withdrawal and the Taliban uh, reclaiming control. And of course, just a few days ago, the, the deadly bombing outside the airport uh, in Kabul. So things have, have gone from sort of bad to worse quite quickly in Afghanistan, and it's become very messy uh in many many ways and we're not at all making light of the situation in fact we're going to spend i think probably a decent amount of time talking about the sort of you, you, perhaps the um the bubbling humanitarian crisis in in afghanistan that's about to that's about to hit if it's not already in full swing but to 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 shift focus for a moment to think about what it means now that the taliban has has um claimed control of uh government in in afghanistan the taliban of course is a specially designated global terrorist group, uh, has been so designated for many, many, many years, uh, dating back to uh, just after 9-11. And so, um, you know, there are, there are complications there. And Tim and I have fielded our fair share of questions in the early days and weeks of, of this situation, just to, with respect to companies and individuals who are trying to do their best to um, 
to wind down things and get out of Afghanistan safely and what that means in terms of dealings with the Taliban. So that's kind of one aspect of this. But I think the more interesting question, quite frankly, is what comes next? And um, obviously, we are just now at the end of the U.S. Um, withdrawal. It is August 31st. Uh, this is it. This is the end, literally today. And so, um, you know, what comes next, I think, is the real question. And, and I think, and I'll just throw this to Tim, but I think that, and obviously there's kind of two, there's kind of two big competing interests here in my view. One is what is the proper way to treat Afghanistan and a government that's controlled by the Taliban? Are, are we, are we as the United States for, from a sanctions policy matter, are we going to take a, a full comprehensive approach? We're going to treat them like North Korea. Uh, or Iran? Uh, are we going to do something in the middle that's perhaps just blocking the, you know, the government, the Taliban, uh, certain other aspects, perhaps something akin to what we've done in Venezuela? Or is it going to be more like what just happened in Myanmar and Burma earlier this year, where maybe we don't even do that? There's an executive order that comes out. There are many different swaths, uh, perhaps of the uh, economy and, and affiliates of the Taliban that get sanctioned. Um, and then the flip side of that, of course, is what happens with um, all of the aid that has been flowing to Afghanistan for many, many years, which is really the linchpin of their economy. They rely so heavily on international aid and U.S. aid. And now um, the the news came out you know, weeks ago now, two weeks ago, that the U.S. was going to freeze all of the um, U.S.-based assets of the Afghan Central Bank. Uh, so that the Taliban could not get get a hold of those assets. That's billions of dollars. There's there's more in that regard as well. IMF, World Bank, others are acting in a similar vein. So, um, you know, how how do we how does the U.S. respond and how does the global community respond from a sanctions imposition standpoint on the one hand with regard to a group that is now controlling the government there? That is, I think, in everybody's view, um, you know, this is a uh, a malign actor of the highest order and somebody that is um, not going to be, it's going to be very difficult to be able to uh, treat them as a sort of typical kind of head of state or ruling party of a state. And then on the other hand, what happens to the Afghan people and all of the humanitarian uh, aid that I think everybody agrees we, we would like to see flow, continue to flow or to, to flow in the future to Afghanistan. So what are we looking into your crystal ball, Tim? What do you think happens next, or what are some what are your initial thoughts on sort of where the U.S. goes from here? So it is it is a tricky problem because you know when you put a group like the Taliban on the the um, SDGT list, you know there are not a lot of exceptions to that list because essentially you know when you're a designated global terrorist, um, the rule is nobody from the U.S. and with U.S. connections or U.S. nexus transactions should be dealing with you. And end of story. But when a group like that comes into the government, somewhat like when Hamas took over the, the Palestinian territories after they won the election in 2006, it becomes much harder because one central tenet of sanctions policy is no matter how much we hate the government and don't want to deal with the government of a country, we do want to make sure that there is a route for humanitarian trade. And and so usually there are various exceptions that allow dealings with governments, even ones like North Korea or ones like Iran that, that are, you know, we view as malign actors. There's exceptions for humanitarian policy and there's kind of a very 
complex system that's put into place as to what transactions will be allowed and what transactions won't. It's not like the simple kind of binary system that you have normally with a designated terrorist group where it's like no transactions. That's the general rule. Now that the Taliban has taken over, I think from a practical perspective, that can't be the rule. And and we saw this in some of the, the questions that we were getting, like, could you deal with the Taliban as you were being evacuated from Af- Afghanistan? Um, if you had to pay certain payments that were normal payments at the airport that you would pay to the government, could those payments be made to the Taliban? Would that be a sanctions violation? Like, I think from a policy perspective, OFAC, I would hope, would tell you, of course, you can make those payments to get out of the country and save your life. On the other hand, from a purely like legal perspective, it it was very hard to come up with a rationale for why those sorts of payments would be allowed because there aren't any general licenses or exceptions that would allow those sorts of payments to be made. And so, so I think that's the sort of you know, very practical and important issue that is going to come up a lot. And I think there are some very smart people over at OFAC and in the Treasury Department trying to figure out what to do about this, because it is a kind of a thorny problem. You don't want to, you know, increase the ability of of the Taliban to have resources, which is why we saw the U.S. government freeze the Afghan government's, you know, the Taliban's access to various resources that are in within U.S. jurisdiction um, once the Taliban took over the government. On the other hand, um, it's the government now. And so to deal with the Afghan people and to provide humanitarian aid and to engage in transactions for the protection of human life, um, you're going to probably have to, as a practical matter, deal with the government in some way and, and sanctions policy needs to reflect that. So I think that's what they're working on now, um, how f- fast they're going on. Yeah, I think there's also, there's just sort of a lot of moving parts that are all tied up within that. One is, as I alluded to, sort of what is the, we're assuming there's going to be a program that has stood up essentially that is targeting Afghanistan. And so that in most likely will come in the form of an executive order as the sort of first move there. Uh, but we don't know. There could be something else. It could be act enact by Congress. There could be something else. But it, let's assume probably an EO that comes out. Um, you know, what is that going to look like? How broadly is it going to sweep? How is it going to define the government of Af- Afghanistan? How is it going to define the Taliban? You know, the Taliban's been an SDGT for two decades, but you know, who's who's in who's part of that and who's not part of that? There are many other kind of Taliban affiliates that are also SDGTs. And so that's that's kind of a tricky question. Another related question is whether or not um, they get the Taliban gets uh, designated as a foreign terrorist organization or state sponsor of terror, because, you know, as we just saw play out at the end of the Trump administration with the Houthis in Yemen, that has big consequences. And that might mean if, if you if you deem them to be an FTO or state sponsor of terror, then that, I think, significantly decreases the ability to sort of negotiate with them as as a you know, head of state, essentially, or as a ruling party in Afghanistan. Um, and obviously, in, in the Yemen situation, that was quickly undone by the Biden administration. But that was, that I think is a good recent illustration of where we kind of had had a similar situation like that. And so how that gets handled is is another question, because there are plenty of people that are in the US that are calling for them to be um, treated as an FDO uh, and a state sponsor of terror. And so that's another thing that has to be worked out. And so you know, it's again, it's kind of, you know, from the recent examples we have, we have obviously Burma is very recent um, and how the how the Biden administration has dealt with the Burma situation and the military in Burma 
Um, that to me kind of seems like the most instructive, which suggests to me that they're not going to go kind of all in on like a, certainly on any kind of a kind of maximum pressure type program at the start. It's going to be something that's a little more targeted uh, and how, what that exactly looks like is hard to say, but that's, that's kind of my, that's kind of my thought on that. I don't know what your, what your feeling is there. Yeah. I mean, so I think you're exactly right when you talk about the need to really update what's going on with the Taliban, because until the last few weeks, the idea that, that anybody would need from, you know, certainly with a U.S. nexus to engage in transactions with the Taliban, um, you know, it just wasn't realistic. Like that wasn't something that, that was, you know, when the, when the designation was made and really in the 20 years since, there haven't, there haven't, hasn't been a lot of legitimate need to do transactions with the Taliban. But at this point, I mean, now that they run the government in Afghanistan, you can think of lots of transactions that the U.S. you know would and should support that that um, that would need to go through the Taliban or potentially need to go through the Taliban. And so they do need to figure out kind of what what do we want to 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 do in terms of a designation? What types of general licenses do we want to have? Is it smart to turn them into a foreign terrorist organization um, it, from a just a practical perspective of it would make it that much harder for humanitarian aid to get through to Afghanistan, which is what I think was driving the situation in Yemen, I, which I, I think is a great example of, you know, the practical reality was that the Trump administration wanted to just signal to the, the Houthis that there was, you know, that they, they were that they were disapproving of the the behavior but the biden administration came in and said but yeah this creates all sorts of practical problems and and we're going to go a different direction i think that may be kind of the outlook here is the taliban designation when it came down i think was much more of a symbolic designation i mean this was the group that had after all was at least connected and and facilitated 9-11 and so, you know, the biggest terrorist act in the history of the con- country, and this group is at least somewhat involved, you've got to designate them as a terrorist organization and a global terrorist organization. 20 years later, I mean, what is the Taliban's connection to terrorism at this point? I, I, I'm not saying that it's different, but it may be, and things change in 20 years. And, um, you know, the Taliban, I think, probably... Um, is not anxious to have a repeat of 2001, even though they ultimately were able to come back into power. It was a long road, and they may do things differently. Right, and and also if the original designation was meant to sort of cut them off from the global financial system, essentially, you know, that by most accounts seems to have been successful, but now they're just postured in a totally different way as the, you know, again, as a sort of head of government and with access to more resources, with access to different streams of revenue, with access uh, to, you know, just sort of, there are just many different sort of vectors that now intersect with the Taliban that were just not there, you know, two months ago. And so, and to your point on the humanitarian aid, I think this is the thing that everybody is really wringing their hands about and trying to, and pulling their hair out about, which is, how how will it, and again to the point and i've seen some numbers that suggest again that you know afghanistan does not have a very a terribly sophisticated economy um they are heavily reliant on international aid and you and they have been heavily reliant on us aid for many years um now pulling the plug on all of that overnight is going to be just a, ca- a catastrophe 
for, you know, every, you know, sort of the population, the run of, you know, the everyday population in Afghanistan. And so what is there that by the, by the way that the U S sets up its sanctions program, whatever that is going to be, how that is done and how it, how it, it looks at and authorizes and facilitates humanitarian transactions is is a big huge open question and whether it's going to go with a, a, a system of just you know broad gls like we've seen in other places you know like in venezuela and things of that sort um is that what we're going to get or is there going to be something else obviously we've talked about this a lot with especially during the covid crisis you know, in some of these more heavily sanctioned countries, and presumably Afghanistan is about to be one of them again. Um, you, you know, it's just it's just very difficult to uh, get you know humanitarian assistance of any kind, whether it's food, medicine, uh, medical equipment, etc., into into the country and 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 get it to the right people. Right? It's just there's always the fear, of course, that it's going to just be there's just it's going to be pilfered left and right by the ruling party. And how do you do that? How do you allow NGOs and other organizations to operate safely and to be able to partner with global financial institutions and other companies to, to be able to get this these supplies and these goods and, and this aid to the people who really need it on the ground? And that is, I think, a huge open question as to how that's going to how that's going to work, because quite frankly, as we have seen and we have experienced and anyone else who deals in this area has experience to date. OFAC hasn't found a perfect way to do it. And there's just, there is just no way to do it to sort of properly incentive, or there has been to date, no way to really do it to kind of properly incentivize people to engage in humanitarian trade without fear of running afoul of, of U.S. sanctions. There just isn't. And, and particular, I mean, a lot of that is driven by the banks, obviously, as we know, but it, it, it flows, it, it's sort of broader than that. And so what, what happens here? Do they try something new? They go back to the playbook and try what they've done before. I, I don't know. I think that's a really interesting question. And perhaps this is a, could be a watershed moment and a bit of a test case to see how they choose to do it because they're basically going to start from scratch and figure out how to do it. And this and here well, the it's one, needed more than the one thing else. that I would the one thing that I would add to that is I mean, it, it would be better if they were starting from scratch right. because I, I think your I think your model of Burma is the right one. That is, you have a sanctions program that is harsh on the actors that you're worried about, but because it's not a embargo or countrywide sanctions program, you at least give a much better chance to humanitarian forms of aid because while the, the, the banks are reluctant to do business in any heavily sanctioned jurisdiction, in, including Burma, um, it, at least when it's not an embargo, there is a, a pretty easy way to navigate that by screening for sanctioned parties and you know who those sanctioned parties are. I mean, the problem that the administration has, in my view, is that if it wants to set up a Burma-like system, it's going to need to remove the Taliban from the SDGT list. And I just find it very hard to imagine that in it's this not climate, gonna happen. That that's going to happen. There's no way that's going to happen. Which means, <laughs> which means then you've got to do it with general licenses right. because because they it, it's just going to be really hard to to um, figure out a way in which there's a transaction in which the government is involved but the Taliban. Right. Is I should also add that that Tim's last comment has hit on what is a fundamental issue here, which is this is essentially a problem of the U.S.'s making. The whole, the whole thing, 
right? I mean, I'm not blaming the current administration. This goes way back, obviously, but this is 20 years of U.S. policy. And, you know, now having the, you know, the needle being put in the balloon and now this is the, everybody has to deal with what is, what the consequences are. And so I think that in particular puts a, a huge strain from a perception and a, um, you know, standpoint with the current administration as to, to be sort of very, they are constrained in some ways, I think, by that. I think as opposed to being kind of free in, in many other respects, as we've talked about, they're, they have been free to kind of course correct from things that the Trump administration did. And, you know, that's a pretty easy narrative, a pretty easy kind of headline to, you know, to weave there. This is much trickier, much, much trickier, because at the end of the day, even though this is 20 plus years of U.S. policy coming you know, coming to a, a crashing conclusion, um, you know, the, the ultimate decision here was on President Biden. And this is now this is what we're dealing with. So this that also just muddies the water considerably. And, and we'll have to see how that plays out and, and how Congress reacts and all the rest of it. But just to, I mean, this is one of the more fascinating areas. We talk about a lot of interesting um, issues that kind of percolate out of foreign policy as it relates to sanctions, this is really one of the more fascinating areas and challenges, quite frankly, that the administration that I could imagine this or any administration having to face in terms of how to how to pivot away from this current situation, the U.S. withdrawal, the Taliban taking back over and what to do next. Right. And without, you know, making what is likely a terrible humanitarian crisis worse, while at the same time trying not to reward the Taliban, right. uh, and 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 you know nothing that I think either of us has said here should should make people think that we don't think the Taliban is capable of engaging in terrible behavior, particularly domestically within Afghanistan, maybe outside of Afghanistan. I just don't claim to have any expertise on that. But the but the fact is is that somebody needs to figure out kind of what we're gonna what our policy is with respect to the Taliban and then unfortunately not from a blank slate, figure out how to accomplish what that policy The last thing that I will add here to further spice things up is of course with the US leaving, that creates a vacuum that now China and Russia are likely salivating to try to fill with respect to Afghanistan. Yeah. And with respect to dealings with the Taliban and or the government and opportunities there. Uh and that is also just another X factor here as to how the U.S. manages that, because that is going to be uh, obviously a lot of history with these countries in Afghanistan and how that plays out is going to be just absolutely fascinating. And, and it's very unclear kind of how the the next phases and the U, any U.S. actions are going to potentially play right into the hands of, of those two key adversaries of the U.S., well, it's been, you know, I haven't followed the, the Russia-Afghanistan um, relationship very closely, but but China I'm, I'm more familiar with. And it's been very interesting in the sense that, you know, at 9-11, um, I think that, that if, if there was a bigger adversary to the Taliban in the world than the U.S., it was China. I mean, they, they had a very antagonistic relationship. My understanding is that over the past 20 years, the Taliban, as it's been out of power, has tried to work to correct that and improve its relationship with the Chinese government. And my, at least as I understand it, they've reached an accommodation that is a lot less unfriendly than it was in the past. And and as you point out, Brian, I mean, 
it, it certainly could be an avenue for China to, to to build on that and for the Taliban to build on that. I mean, it is a they they share a border, so the Taliban has strong incentives not to antagonize China. Right. So we, we, I think that's a good place to end. And uh, look, obviously, this is a monumental story, and sanctions is only a small part of it. But we will be keeping a close watch on this, as we expect there's going to be a lot of activity in the coming month or two here. Um, and obviously, uh, just, a, um, you know, the latest, unfortunately, in a series of, of really heart-wrenching kind of stories uh, that, that sort of lead us to, to, to discuss these issues on, on the pod. But, um, but let's, let's end there. Um, and uh, like we said, we will, um, we have plenty to catch up on next time that we have not even mentioned this week. Um, but thank you again to Michael Griffiths from GIR for joining us. Uh, for a very fun conversation and then a little bit more of a somber conversation the second half of the pod today talking about Afghanistan and what's coming next. But um, to everybody out there, I uh, hope everyone is uh, in the U.S. Hope you hope you have a, a, an enjoyable Labor Day weekend. Um, wear your masks, uh, get your shots, and uh, we will see you in a couple weeks for the next episode. Uh, until then, stay safe and stay sanctions free. See you in September. Uh, stay sanctions free. Thanks, everybody. everyone. Bye.